Hi, welcome to Parenting the Adlerian Way. I'm your host, Adlerian family counselor and parenting expert, Allison Schaefer. Each week, I answer your burning parenting questions to help reduce the stress of parenting one tip at a time. We'll explore Adlerian psychology together and learn methods of child guidance for raising a happy, confident, capable, resilient child. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I have to say, thank you so much for giving me a pre-release of this book. I have just absolutely eaten it up and I cannot wait for it to hit the shelves. You have to tell me what the release date is because I immediately need to like put this in the hands of at least 15 to 20 people just off the top of my head that need to read this material. When's the launch date? It comes out August 22nd. Um, But but if, you know, any of your listeners want to pre-order it, um, they could head over to my website and I'll give them a lot of exclusive content, which we could talk about later. So yeah. there's a, there's an incentive to pre-order and I will, uh, send them lots of, lots of content. Okay. So we'll, at the end, we'll make sure that we do a big wrap up on where to get this book, but okay. So August is the big date. That's, that's fantastic. Um, so let me start by asking you the question, what was the impetus personally or professionally for why you thought that this content matter of never enough, this toxic achievement culture needed to be written about and addressed in the first place or researched? What what happened for you? So as you mentioned in the intro, I'm a mother of three teenagers um, and I was noticing how different my childhood was compared to my three children. And so, uh, you know, as you mentioned, I, I write a lot on parenting topics. And then in 2019, I wrote an article for the Washington Post about how students in competitive high schools, those are private or public schools around the country, they are now officially an at-risk group, at risk for uh, two to six times national norms when it comes to diagnose, you know, a clinical diagnosis of anxiety, depression, substance abuse disorder. So these students who, you know, come from the top 25% or so of household incomes are now at risk for clinical levels of anxiety and depression at two to six times national norms. So I wanted to know as a journalist and as a mother of three teenagers, what was going on and what I could do to buffer against it in my own house. And you dug in deep and the research was uh, was slightly horrifying, but but it's it actually is a positive book because, well, it sheds the light on this quiet problem 
that is now percolating to the top. And I think we saw it more exacerbated during, you know, COVID, but this has been going on for a while. It's also a solution book. So I, I appreciate you for, for going that, not, not just making it a scary tale. So what has gone on recently to, to your point about the change generationally that our society, our institutions, our parenting, what, who's to blame here? What, how did we get here? How did, how did achievement, which sounds so sexy, you know, that everybody seemingly wants, aren't we told to, to help our kids achieve? What's gone wrong? What's changed? So I spoke with economists and sociologists and historians to dig into what these changes were. So when I think back, you know, in the 1970s, when I was growing up, life was generally more affordable. You could most likely own a home. Healthcare was more affordable. Higher education was more affordable. There was slack in the system, meaning that parents could have a, a an adolescent who, who could afford to make some wrong moves or, along the way. But, and those parents had faith that their kids would still be able to live a secure adulthood. In the past several decades, um, steep inequality has been ushered in. Uh, there is a crush of the middle class. There is globalization, and it has led to this hyper-competitive, anxious feeling in the air that parents are absorbing these macroeconomic forces. Parents are absorbing, and they may not even know consciously that they're absorbing them, but it, it comes out in their parenting behavior. They want to set their kids up for what feels like a very uncertain future. Um, and so while it's very easy to blame parents for this, these pressures are really bigger than any one family, any one school and any one community. Um, so this book, as you say, it offers solutions and it very much does not blame parents. I, I There have been so many books written and I just shake my head because I think they have oversimplified what's going on in parenting today. Most parents I know are not parenting for a status symbol of the name of a good college or anything like that. Um, I think the the hovering and the anxiety that we feel as parents are these macroeconomic forces. And so what I tried to do in the book was to unpack it a little bit in the beginning. Just I think we have too often we personalize instead of contextualize what's going on in the world around us. And so I wanted parents to feel less alone. Um, I also actually, when I first started, I conducted a first of its kind parenting survey with a researcher at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. I wanted to get to the root of what this pressure was, how parents were feeling it. Um, and I actually printed out a few, a couple of little you know, questions and answers if you were interested. In oh, please. Them. Oh, let's hear them. I think I think when people get to, into the raw data, they really get a sense of, <laughs> of what Terrific. we're talking about. I, yeah. So just to set the context, the researcher said to me, we really need a sample size of a thousand so that we could we could really see patterns. But within a few days, over sixty five hundred parents had filled it out. Wow. And these yeah. So these were parents everywhere in the U.S. And actually, we had Canadian parents as well uh, chime in on this survey. So I asked parents about the pressure they felt. And I, I asked the question, how much did they agree or disagree with this statement? 
Others think that my children's academic success is a reflection of my parenting. 83% of parents either somewhat or strongly agreed with that statement. Um, I, I asked the parents how much they agreed with this statement. The burdens and expectations of parenting often leave me anxious, stressed, or unhappy. 62% of parents agreed with that statement. And then I'll, I'll leave you with two other ones. I feel responsible. I feel responsible for my children's achievement and success. 75% of parents agreed with that. And then I'll leave you with the last one. I wish today's childhood was less stressful for my kids. 87% of parents agreed. So what I got from, from the survey was that parents are feeling this tremendous responsibility to you know, be responsible for their children's academic success. They also talked about the responsibility they felt for their kids' extracurricular activities, their, their sports acumen, how well they played the piano. I mean, parents are shouldering this burden. Um, and here in the U.S., we do not have safety nets, social safety nets like we do in other countries, including Canada. So it is parents very much today feel like they have to create their own individualized safety nets for each of their children. And that's where this stress comes from. And, and that stress from, if you're now the child who's being raised in the content, the context of a society that is putting these um, or sending the signaling that um, it's it's more of a scarcity mentality than an abundance mentality. Only a few of the cream to the crop are going to make it. And our definition of success gets narrower and narrower. And then you're hearing it from your primary attachment figure who's feeling this onus. I, I've got to believe that if we could, you know, measure it, that there has to be a transfer of the parental stress onto the kid's stress who's already getting it from the other factors. Absolutely. And actually, people are starting to measure it. There was a report that came out uh, this past week uh, by the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And what they looked at were parents and children. Um, so within the same family, and they found that kids who were reporting high levels of stress had parents who were reporting high levels of stress. So one of the biggest takeaways, and this won't come as a surprise to you, but it it did come as a surprise to me. The number one intervention for any child in distress is to make sure, this is according to decades of resilience research, to make sure the primary caregiver, who is most often the mother or the father, the primary caregiver, to make sure their well-being, their mental health, their support system is intact because a child's resilience rests fundamentally on their caregiver's resilience. And a caregiver's resilience rests on their relationships, the depth, the comfort, uh, feeling seen and heard and understood and valued by people close to them. Um, so it is to me that one of the big takeaways of the book is we as parents need to make sure our mental health and our support systems are intact 
for the betterment of the people within our home. And it does not mean, you know, the the saying, put on your oxygen mask on first. It actually goes deeper than that. It is creating relationships, people surrounding ourselves with people in our lives who will notice our stress and will put the oxygen mask on for us. So, you know, it is, uh, it's counterintuitive because we are told in our society today that, you know, to be a good mother is to be a self-sacrificing mother. But really what we have to be doing is putting our needs first, which really is counter-cultural. And we have to keep saying this again and again to parents and show the research over and over again until that sinks in and we change our cultural ways um, and I love that you make the shout out. If you're not, don't do it for yourself. You're never going to do it for yourself. Do it because the research says it helps your children. You yes. know, so, so fundamental. The other big, big piece that I thought was just really well addressed and, um, and again, backed up is this concept of mattering. And I mean, of course, that's going to mothers mattering and look and fathers mattering and looking after themselves. But talk more about what mattering means and why it's so important in the context of uh, this achievement culture and this feeling of, of never enough. Yes. So I went in search of the kids who were thriving despite the pressure. I wanted to know who were the healthy high achievers in these communities. What did they have in common? What was home life like for them? What did their parents focus on? What was school like? What were their relationships like with their peers? And I came across uh, about 14 common threads that the healthy high achievers I met had in common. And as I was looking for a framework to present my findings, I came across a psychological construct called mattering. It was first conceptualized in the 1980s by the legendary Morris Rosenberg, who conceptualized self-esteem. And what he found was kids who enjoyed a healthy level of self-esteem had parents at home who focused on mattering. Those children felt like they were important and significant to their parents. Researchers since the 1980s have been studying, studying it actually all over the world. Um, it is in their words, it is uh, a universal feeling, this instinct to matter. After food and shelter, it is the instinct to matter that drives human behavior for better and for worse. Kids who feel like they matter have this kind of protective shield that buffers against stress and anxiety. They feel valued for who they are at their core by their families, by their communities. And they're also importantly dependent on to add meaningful value back to their families, to their schools, to their communities. So this feeling of feeling valued and being dependent on to add value, that's mattering. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
And that version of mattering, that contribution, betterment of others, putting the focus on what what can I do to lift the be helpful to to the group rather than the individual pursuit. Uh, that so is again counterintuitive to the world's a competitive place. So my kids should be at the the forefront of it. Then I'm not going to slow them down to help somebody else get ahead. Um, that this idea of of mattering and counting for things that are different than I only matter because I brought home the A plus on the report card because all of society has dictated that that's what I'm put on this planet to do. I, I I've got to achieve and be the top ranked. And if I don't do that, then I don't matter. And this really says, society sends that message, but we really need to clean that up. That's really inappropriate messaging for what the psyche wants, right? Absolutely. I, I have, um, I met so many parents who were so deliberate in buffering against those messages that you just talked about. And one that comes to mind is this very wise mother I met who talked about making the thinking visible. Right. So we can say to our kids, I love you no matter what. But what does that actually mean? How can we make that concrete for our children? And so what she does is anytime her adolescents, you know, uh, fail a test or, you know, don't make the cut on the A team or are feeling left out by their friends, she reaches into her wallet and she takes out a $20 bill and she says to them, Do you want this $20 bill? And they inevitably say, Yes, of course. Then she wrinkles it up puts it theatrically on the floor, squashes it with her dirty shoe, then dunks it into a glass of water. And she holds up this soggy, dirty, wrinkled $20 bill. And she says to her child, do you still want this bill? And the child says, yes. And she says, like this $20 bill, your worth doesn't change whether you fail, whether you get cut from a team, whether you are dirty and wrinkled, your value is your value. And to me, that was such a profound way of, of explaining this complex idea in a simple way to a child. Your value is your value. I loved that. That's, I, that is beautiful. So long as they don't say, but isn't $40 better than 20? So I, <laughs> I, I, I love that. I think that's so concrete. The other thing that you put words to in, in, to a concept that I'm very familiar with and teach, but the way that you presented it, really, I thought, wow, that resonated on a whole different level for me. And that was talking about praise and criticism as sort of being, um, you know, the same construct, but on the opposite side of the coin. And, you know, you hear a lot of parents will want to try to bolster their kids and try to get whatever that feeling of self-esteem or mattering, but they'll accidentally do it through this appraisal process of, of praising. And we think that that's like filling their bucket because we're saying you're such a good student and you'll bat, you know, all these positive things in order to, to be supposedly the antidote to failing from the team or failing the test or whatever. But the praise really just reinforces the idea that the world is full of judgment and you're still on a judgment scale. You just happen to be doing okay this time, but it really is. Criticism is also a judgment. It just says we're measuring you. And now this time you're doing bad things, but the whole thing is still predicated around judgment. And that's the part where mattering gets us off that scale completely. Absolutely. I, 
Um, in one of my interviews for this book, I interviewed Rick Wiseboard, who's at Making Caring Common uh, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. And he said something to me that really stuck with me, and it still does today. He said, the self becomes sturdier, less by being praised than by being known. So in other words, instead of praising your kid for their performance, as you said, which feels very contingent, instead get to know them intimately. I say in the book, get a PhD in your kid, know what makes them tick, what is unique about them, let them feel heard and loved and accepted for who they are at their core. And I think I was certainly one of these parents. I did not know instinctually, I guess I knew, but I was never able to really put my finger on it, what my kids' natural strengths were so that I could get to know them better, so that I could get the PhD in them. And I came across something called the VIA Character Survey. It's Values in Action Character Survey. It's a free online tool um, that was developed by two of the leading positive psychology grandfathers of the movement, Marty Seligman and Christopher Peterson. And what, and also dozens of other scientists, this is a scientifically validated survey and you can go on. It takes about 10 minutes. They have a version for adults and they have a version for kids. And my whole family took it. And it, and for example, my daughter, you know, one of her top character strengths is her sense of humor. And so she was having, this was in seventh or eighth grade. And she was, there was drama at the lunchroom table and I said to her, which of your character strengths could you use to help you solve this problem at the lunchroom table? And she said, oh, humor. And so she came up with, I can't remember what she's now, but she came up with a very funny quip whenever somebody would try to start trouble at the lunchroom table in her peer group. And it worked. So um, another way that I sort of notice my kids' strengths is I read the report cards so in my children's school, they give a short little summary with a grade of what the child's strengths are in the classroom. And so I've taken to actually annotating it and saying, oh, my gosh, I see this, too. This is amazing. And I highlight it. And um, one final way that we really hammer home our children's strengths and, and that we know them and we see them is every birthday around our kitchen table, we say one thing we love about the birthday boy or girl. And it's not, it's never about achievement, right? When you talk about why you love somebody, it's because they're kind. And my daughter said to my son, I love how even when you have so much homework, you will stop to help me with a math problem. You're so caring, even with strangers. So um, anyway, there are just things we can do in our everyday life to emphasize these innate strengths that make our kids who they are. I, I love that. And um, I will say as a therapist, I can echo on the fact that most of the kids come into my practice saying, yeah, my parents are pretty intense. They're like, they, they've quit their jobs to parent. They're totally invested, hyper invested in this intense parenting style. So you can say I, th those, these kids must matter to their parents because they've invested their whole life in them. Um, and yet the kids will come in high distress from the pressure of that and say, but my parents don't know me. 
They don't get it. They don't know me. I'm actually unseen in my family. And that seems like such a contradiction. So it's such a gift as a therapist to let kids be seen in my practice. And I see how therapeutic and healing it is for these kids to be seen, even though I'm not their primary attachment. I may be the, you know, I mean, teachers can do this. Coaches can do this. Neighbors can do this. We hope that parents do it. But I think this is the job for, you know, if it takes a village, it can be all parents having those eyes. And you suggested it doesn't have to be a big grand gesture, that it's about these little micro experiences, regular micro experiences. That's exactly right. You know, it's 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 making these small shifts in your home. If you're a family that you feel like has has focused too much on achievement and performance, you know, one simple thing you can do something I've adopted in my own home is, you know, when my kids would be studying, for example, for a test or trying out for the team. When they walked in the door, I'd ask them how to go, you know, just to, to, you know, signal that I care, but what the way it might land on my children, and I think it was landing on them is that, oh my gosh, my mother has been thinking about this all day. This to her is the most important thing to ask me about when I walk in the door. So instead I've, I've shifted my conversation. So when I see them now, instead of asking about a performance metric, I lead with lunch. I ask them, what'd you have for lunch today? Who'd you sit with? What'd you talk about? It's just a simple signal that I care about you more than I care about some performance thing that might've happened today. Another psychologist I interviewed talked about how she um, greets her children at the door at least once a day, like the family puppy would, right? The family puppy doesn't care if you lose your job or you gain 20 pounds or you were just working out and you're sweaty and gross. The family puppy loves you no matter what. They, he or she loves you for your essence. And that's the message we need to send to our kids. I, I love that. You know, now that we're getting into some practical ways, because the book does give solutions to, to how we uh, improve on this situation. Can I get you to say a little bit more about what you also created in your family with the, uh, the I don't know if you call it the NOFAs or the NOFAs. I don't know what you're, whatever. Oh, they're yeah. So they're called NOFAs and OFAs, non-optional family activities and optional family activities. This was my husband who created this because we have three teenagers and, you know, they they would sometimes like to sit in their rooms with their doors closed, talking to their friends or listening to music. And even in the teen years, it's super important. I have found from the research and the psychologists that I talked to that even though your child may be pulling away developmentally, trying, you know, creating their own identity, it does not mean that the parent should be pulling away. The parent should be there knocking on the door, offering invitations to get together, offering you know, affection, um, kind words. And so we've done, we've instituted this in our house with OFAs. So once, at least once a week, my husband will will um, issue a NOFA and an OFA. A non-optional family activity might be that we are getting together with our neighbors and their children are going to be there. And this is a NOFA. You need to show up. This is important to be a part of our community and uh, but an OFA might be, you know, I'm going on a hike in the woods and, you know, I'd love your company, but it's it's an OFA. You don't have to come if you don't feel like going outside and, and being in nature. So it's it's what it is, is it it 
it is putting the responsibility on the parent to reach out and and keep this relationship strong and the pathways of communication and connection strong, even in the face of a teen possibly pulling away. And, the, and that style of interaction, which is the hiking, the board game, the movie, the whatever it might be, like that, all of that is that essence of play and social equality and bonding that isn't predicated on performance, right? Like it's, exactly. it's, 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 it's kind of keeping the message more balanced about what's important and what's valued. And that's very essence based. It's very relational and essence based, not what have you done for me lately? <laughs> yeah, play is really one of the richest resources we have for connection, because as you pointed out, you know, we sometimes do adventures with our kids. We travel with our kids and we're all new. We're all, you know, new people, equal footing in a new city, trying to navigate our way around. Um, and, you know, it's it's that it's that parenting with, um, you know, dynamic as opposed to a parenting over dynamic with play and, and all of that. Mm -hmm. And it's the first thing to erode. And I think parents, to your point, especially in the teen years, go, well, they don't care about us anymore. Everything I read says their peers are the most important people. So we won't even try to ask. We just assume they're going to say no. We assume they're going to stay in their bedroom. We assume they're going to want to see their friends. Uh, but yeah, they're going to interpret that as well, my parents don't care. They don't care whether I'm here. They didn't invite me. They didn't ask me. Even if they say no a hundred times, the, they're registering that you are seeking them out. You know, that's a form of mattering too, right? hundred percent. Every single day, my husband walks in to my kids' rooms to connect with them. Every single day, they don't necessarily want him in there talking to him, but it doesn't stop him. He keeps going every day. He's knocking on that door every single day consistently. Yeah, so some days they want him in, some days they don't. So parents, it, you don't look at the eyeball rolling as any indication of what you're doing as being important. Listen to the research and to the professionals saying it matters and continue on and, um, uh, you know, Take one for the team when they give you some attitude. That's what teens do. But you're actually you're you're doing you're doing the right uh, course of action. Um, oh my gosh! Um, is there anything else that I've kind of missed asking you about? That's a core component of the book. I, I don't want to give it all away because I want people to buy the book. And I mean, we've hit some pretty big topic areas here. Um, um, but is have I? Is there a, a piece that you want to make sure that this audience hears? Because of course, we're going to encourage them to go out and read this for themselves. Yeah, no, I think you hit on all of the big takeaways. I mean, I do break down what gets in the way of these connections with parents and kids and kids and teens. And, and I talk about sort of the uncomfortable feelings that hyper-competition elicit, like envy and, and hyper-competition and, and how parents can help kids manage those feelings, those sort of shameful feelings when we don't measure up in healthy ways. Um, but no, I think you've, I think you've hit on all of it. I, I only because you hit on all of it in a great book. And I just, like I said, I really enjoyed and I so enjoyed reading it. Um, and, and now you've also in, in writing it have cited so many other resources where I'm like, well, now I'm going to have to go read these three books. So <laughs> my summer reading list is now chock full. <laughs> thanks to you. Um, so let's, uh, let me, let me throw it back to you to um, uh, give a shout out. Like when's it coming out? Where can people find it? And I'll, I'll put all that in the show notes, but people are going to want to follow you, ask you questions. How, how can we keep the conversation? going for people. Oh, I would love that. So uh, the book comes out August 22nd. You can uh, reach out to me on my website, jenniferbwallace.com. 
And I've also co-founded something called the Mattering Movement with some colleagues and leading researchers in the field. And what I'm doing with the Mattering Movement is I, you know, as we talked about, the book is very practical. It gives a mindset and a framework and a skill set. And then after parents read it, if they want even more, I'm going to be having resources at the Mattering Movement, my co-founders and I, um, for parents to download. And we're creating a community where we can talk about these important issues together. It's sort of a safe community. Unbelievable. Um, so I will put all those links uh, in, in the show notes so people can follow you, join the movement, buy the book, read the book. Um, I wish you the best of luck with all of this. And if there's any way that I can contribute and help with getting the word out there, extending what you're doing, let me know, because um, I really think it's vital, vital, important work. I can't thank you enough. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a thrill to be on your podcast. I appreciate it. I'm sure we'll find other topics in the future. I'd love that. Yeah. All right. All the best. Thank you so much. As you know, it takes a village to make a podcast. So thanks to my team, including Max Cotter, my editor and technician, as well as the crew at H2O Digital. This podcast was recorded in Toronto, Canada. We acknowledge the land we are meeting on is the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabek, the Chippewa, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people, and is now home to many diverse First Nations, Inuit and Métis. We also acknowledge that Toronto is covered by Treaty 13 with the Mississaugas of the Credit.